I knew word of mouth actually works. I just need to be patient. I didn't have a big budget, so doing performance marketing or huge press campaigns was not an option. My name is Felix Tia, and I'm the host of Shopify Masters, a weekly podcast powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. Each week, we invite entrepreneurs like you to share what they've learned growing successful e-commerce businesses. In this episode, you'll learn why fast fashion is a bad business model, how to grow your YouTube channel to your first 1,000 subscribers, and how to create a giveaway that generates a lot of attention. Before we get into our show, I wanted to take a moment to talk about the Shopify App Store. Shopify apps help you easily customize and add features to your store to make it your own. The App Store hosts over 4,000 apps built specifically for Shopify businesses. Shopify developers all over the world built these apps to help you save time and unlock a range of new features, from showing your Instagram feed on your store to offering loyalty rewards and more. Check out shopify.com slash app store for the latest Shopify apps. Today I'm joined by Justine Leconte. Justine is a French fashion designer creating ethical clothing for all body types and started in 2016 and based out of Berlin, Germany and is a six-figure business. Welcome, Justine. Thank you very much for having me. Hi. Hello, everyone. Tell us a story about how you got the idea behind the kind of vision and mission that you have behind your business because you were in the middle of studying women's, women's wear design in New York and when something happened that really set your vision on the kind of business that you wanted to create. Tell us more about that experience. Initially, I studied business. I have two master degrees in marketing and in strategy. I worked in business for a few years in cosmetics and in tech. And while I was doing that, I got more and more interested in the fashion industry. And I noticed three things that really bugged me. The first one was this fast fashion trend. I don't know if your listeners are familiar with that concept. It's those very, very cheap labels that produce overseas super cheap and then sell for like a couple of bucks in richer countries. I was completely against that. I thought it was not a good business model. Then I noticed that young designers are super depending on fashion week, the fashion calendar, the fashion press. And I thought, why do they need other people to make a name for themselves? There must be another way. And the third thing was actually that distribution also depends on other people. They have to go to Nordstrom or to Selfridges. And if they don't get into these stores, they're not selling anything. And I was seeing all of this and I thought that makes no sense. So I started out thinking about starting my own label, but I realized that I needed proper design skills. So I went back to school, left Europe. I went to New York and I studied fashion design there with the intention of building my label when I would be back in Europe afterwards. Wow. So definitely a, a uh, well thought out plan that, that took, it sounds like many years to put into practice. It was several years in the making. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Overnight success, right? Quote unquote, overnight success. That's, that's interesting. So you, you mentioned you went back to school. What was that experience like? Did you feel like you, I think, I think there's often a, I want to say a stigma, but often you hear in the entrepreneurship world that, Oh, you know, you don't need school. You can learn things on your own. What was your experience? Like, do you feel like it was, you know, worth the time to go back and get a more kind of a more formal education around the the skill that you needed or the skill of of you know fashion design. 
I think it was absolutely necessary and the right step, even though it took me longer. Um, there is no such thing as uh, I'm I'm a singer now I'm a designer, <laughs> things like that. <laughs> These people have teams, um, and I wanted to do it by myself, like really understanding about proportions, understanding what people want to wear and how they think when they're in the dressing rooms, and that's not something I can get through other people. I had to find it out by myself. So going back to school was definitely a good thing. I have to say I fast-tracked my studies in New York so that I could start my label faster. <laughs> it's a matter of the number of semesters you, you need versus the budget you have, right? The faster you do it, the, the cheaper it is in the U.S. However, I would probably recommend to somebody else to take more time if they can afford it because it was really, really fast. And I left school still thinking, wow, that was a shock. <laughs> yeah, what happened, right? Like it's a whirlwind. That's, that's funny. So you mentioned a couple of reasons why you, you decided on the vision of the kind of clothing label, clothing brand that you wanted to create. And one of, them, like, one of the things you mentioned was that you were against this concept of fast fashion, which you described to us. And there's an ethical aspect of it. Then also you mentioned that there is, it was a bad business model. So can you talk about the, the bad business model aspect? Like what did you see about fast fashion that you think is not the, the best approach in terms of just strictly business, uh, business perspective? The way fast fashion works is that the labels bring out new collections every two weeks. It's a very, very quick turnover for super cheap prices. I mean, if you're a shopper in Europe and you get a t-shirt for five euros, this is not a normal price. Like it's the price that actually doesn't exist unless you have the t-shirt produced somewhere in Southeast Asia where the workers, the garment workers are not being paid properly. Like if you pay people properly, that price would not be possible. It's based off of a system that's crooked and it has very, very low margins. So fast fashion labels need huge volumes. They will pre-produce so that they don't miss sales, but they will then destroy a lot of the inventory. Like it's a very, very wasteful system that's not financially stable in the long run, unless you keep pushing the costs down. So it's not a price in any industry and fashion is no exception, I think. How do you, can you describe the business that you've created then that is the opposite of, opposite of and you know, purposely moving away from fast fashion? What, what kind of business have you created that if others want to follow the same footsteps as you to avoid this trap of fast fashion, what kind of business do you need to create? Well, my business is made and sourced entirely in Europe. There is great know-how and high quality in Europe, so I thought, why not use that? Due to the fact that I sell directly online without an intermediary, like a wholesaler or a multi-brand store, I can keep the prices lower while having costs that are higher because I don't need a margin for second person in between. It's just my earning. Then I have pattern makers that are with me here in Berlin. I do the fittings myself. It's not like pattern making is outsourced overseas. The pattern is essential. This is how the garment will fit afterwards. If the pattern is crooked, you can take the best fabric. It will look like crap. Got it. Okay, so you so you went to school for to to learn uh, design. Once you got out, what was the next step? How did you start making that going down the road of starting up your own your own your own clothing label and your own company? Well, I had a pretty clear roadmap even before going to design school. So when I came back, I established myself in Berlin because I thought it was a smart city to start out in fashion. Paris is very busy. London is very high. I thought Berlin had more space and brain capacity for, for new designers, so to speak. So that's why I even chose that city to settle in. Then I registered my company and I started going to fairs, look at the prices because I studied in New York. So I had to learn about the supply chain and the price levels in Europe. I went to fabric fairs, to trade fairs, to suppliers everywhere in Europe. Then I built my price model thinking, okay, I want a price point that's above my mass market, but 
below designer, far below designer price points, because I want that to be affordable for more people. I settled out to specialize in knitted things. Knitted can be from a thick sweater to a jersey top. They're, they're from fine to thick knits, but not woven, because I thought there is enough offer on the market out there for woven stuff, but there is not enough choice for knits. We only see sweatshirts and yoga pants, but there's more to knits than this. So what I do is knitted, ready to wear. You can really wear it to work, not just at the gym or on your couch. I launch new collections when I want. <laughs> I don't take Fashion Week or the fashion calendar throughout the year into account. When I plan a project, a new collection comes out when it's ready and when it's good enough. It can be fashion or jewelry, by the way, because I do both now. <laughs> I extended my line. And so fashion and jewelry, but the process is always the same. When I'm ready, I go out and distribution is immediate. So I don't need intermediaries to talk to my audience. I can talk to them directly. And that's also very, very precious because the message is the way I intended it to be communicated. That's how I operate. Great. So let's, let's break this down a little bit. So there, uh, so when you first set out to, I, I guess, where does the, the, what do the ideas come from that, that, that even begins uh, you down this path of designing new new items or new lines. Like, where does this begin? The very first collection was intended as a sort of reset, which also matched my state of mind at this time, switching careers completely. Reset meant for me very soft fabrics, things that wrap around your body, things that protect you, not clothes that fight against you and that make you feel uncomfortable. So that was the original idea. Then I worked to turn that into a feeling, into a fabric, into a sort of pattern of color palette. And that's how the first collection was born. Then to give you a different example, when I started doing jewelry, the idea was fabric is always soft, whatever you can saw around the 3D body that will hold and that will create a garment. In jewelry, it's the opposite because it's so stiff. I'd like to combine both things and make jewelry that feels like fashion in, in a sort of way that is sharp and edgy on one side, but also has soft surfaces on the other side, just like fabric. And that's how the first jewelry collection was born. So it really depends on the mindset I'm in at that time, I guess, what I'm looking at, what I'm inspired by. And then one day I wake up and there is a concept somewhere in my head. <laughs> <laughs> So what I think is interesting is that in other industries, the, the emphasis on going out to see what the rest of the market is doing is very important, like trade shows, understanding what the, your competitors are doing, what the industry leaders are doing. And I think the same thing with, with fashion for the most part, right? You mentioned like, you know, fashion week and, and as a focus around events that almost set the trend. But you're, you're saying you purposefully do not follow those trends or do not pay too close attention to what's going on outside of your your thoughts and your ideas do you do you find that is like um i I guess for others out there that are in the same industry as you in in fashion how important is it to stay on top of the trends or do you find that it's best to kind of go your own path and, and and not really pay much attention to what other people are doing paying attention to trends and to competition i'd say yes and no i do it because i'm i don't live in a in a closed bubble, right? So everything that happens around me that I see in stores, that I see online, that I see other people wearing, it affects me somehow, clearly. It's just not a really conscious process. So when I go to fabric fairs, yeah, there I have my antennas open, turning 360, uh, 360 degrees all the time, um, looking for new fabrics, for new textures, for new feelings. But the rest of the year, it's more absorbing what I see and it comes out in a different way at the other end. 
kind of, where I can't work like bigger fashion labels is when you say looking at trends, what works, what doesn't, we just don't have the same vibes. If you're a big house like Chanel, you can afford every fabric. If you're a big house like, uh, I'm going to say H&M, which is a fast fashion label, you can get huge quantities. So you'll get whatever you want. At my size, being a small label, not everything is possible. So looking at what others do is not a good benchmark in my case, or at least not always. So when I started my label, I was very careful to not look at what others are doing. And it was freeing both creatively and financially. Like I could build my thing the way I really want it to be and evolve from there. So yes mm, and no. That makes sense. So yeah, I think I think what you're getting at is that there are certain aspects of what other people are doing that you can pull in, but then you have your own kind of boundaries that you, you, you exist within and you have to work within those boundaries. Boundaries and also freedom because when big labels have to plan 20% of pens, 30% of jackets and 10% of jerseys, I can do the mix the way I want. So I have constraints, yes, but I'm also more free to build whatever I want, what fits the concept that I have. Right, that totally makes sense. Okay, so you mentioned that you you kind of um, spent some time almost in like brainstorming mode on what the, you want the collection to look like. And then one day you wake up with an idea. Now, wh- now what do you do on a, da- like a daily basis once you have inspiration behind an idea for what you want in the collection? Like how are you uh, turning it in from a thought in your head into something that's tangible that you can actually start seeing? Like what is the design process? Like for someone that, for others like you know myself that are not in this industry, can you explain to us what that what's involved? It depends on the designer. I think everybody thinks differently in that industry because the thinking process is so free, so to speak. But in my case, I would say I almost always start with proportions and with shapes because I like something that sits well, that fits properly. So I will sketch the complete silhouette first. Then I will add a feeling for colors, textures, etc. And then I will go look for fabrics. I know there are people who start the opposite way. They start with fabrics and see what they can make with that fabric. But for me, it's not the case. Because for me, the, the look, the silhouette, the allure, and the proportions are more, more important. Makes sense. Okay, so now once it gets to the point of production, how, how do you know how much to produce? How do you how do you decide on how large of a production you are going to run with for that collection? That was the biggest challenge for the first collection that I brought out, I think. I mean, anybody who does physical products has the same issue right? How big is my potential market? How much do I plan of each size, of each color? How much can I sell in how much time? How many returns should I plan with? It's cash flow and inventory issues, except that since I was starting out by myself, I had no benchmark whatsoever. So the first time was really a guess. And then I went from there. For the latest clothing collection that I did, I did a pre-order system and I used these quantities for each size and each color to kind of guess in a more educated way how much I should order of each. Turned out it was wrong, (laughs) but it was closer to what I should have ordered um, than for the first collection. Clearly, like I'm getting smarter with every collection, but yes, I build my own benchmarks. For the jewelry, I made it in a different manner. It's on demand, so it's produced when it's ordered. So I don't have inventory shortcuts. It's just that people have to wait a couple of weeks for their order. Mm. Is that more? Is that more? Um, I guess acceptable when it comes to jewelry compared to to clothing. I don't think so. At least not in my case, because people who buy my clothes 
probably know me or have a connection with me through previous purchases because I have many, many returning customers, very happy with this, or people who are in touch with me through YouTube or social media in general, where I'm very active, so they know me. Um, I think it's not a problem for them to wait. When I did the pre-orders for the latest clothing collection, they also had to wait. They had to wait about two months. Got it. Okay, that's great. So, so now that you, once you have the, the, the inventory, how did you launch your, your very first collection? Because like, I, I, think, I think afterwards you, you, you have launched different ways. But how did you first get the word out really about your, your label to begin with? I tried what everybody says you should be trying, which is sending lookbooks and samples to the press, um, calling people, going to ring the bell of all the buyers of the major stores in Western Europe. Nobody replied because who am I? They didn't know me. I didn't have big budgets. I didn't have huge collections and I was not showing at Fashion Week. Fair enough, right? Why would they take some of the time and listen to me? So I figured I'd rather start by myself and I went full online e-commerce only immediately because I thought I need a proof of concept. They will listen to me if I can prove to them that I have an audience, that there are people, there is a market for my product. If I can't find an audience by myself, why would I expect the press or Nordstrom or Selfridges to do so? So I thought I'm going to try and see what happens. And it grew in the first year very slowly, but in a sort of snowball because the products were good. I could tell people recommending it to their friends. I could see several orders in the same month from the same village, for instance, somewhere in the world. And I knew word of mouth actually works. I just need to be patient. I didn't have a big budget. So doing performance marketing or huge press campaigns was not an option. I just waited, kept doing what I was doing. I kept launching new collections. I also started a YouTube channel at some point because I wanted to teach people to show them what good quality looks like how to use proportions to build the silhouette that you want, how to curate your wardrobe, this kind of thing. And I guess a little bit of everything that I did ended up snowballing. And by now, every collection that I make is twice as big as the previous one. So it is working. It's just that at the beginning, nothing goes as fast as you'd want it to. But if you focus on the right things and just keep doing it, it eventually works. I'm absolutely convinced of that. Yeah, at the beginning, it almost seems like you're pushing up a very, very heavy stone uphill. And it just feels like you have to continually push it. You don't feel any momentum. But then you hit a certain point where all of the things that you've done in the past are now just clicking. And then all of a sudden, it starts rolling downhill much faster. So I think your story is certainly a testament to that. So you mentioned, uh, we'll definitely talk about the YouTube channels. I think that uh, there's a lot of success that you've had there that I think a lot of listeners are going to be interested in. Before we get there, though, you mentioned that you were first trying to go down the more traditional paths of selling lookbooks, going to buyers, trying to get press to to get your name out there. That didn't, you didn't get any traction there. So you decided to do it yourself. And you it sounded like you went on to promote your your label on social media. So tell us more about that. Like what platforms are you using? Like how are you actually promoting your your label on social media? Well, I wasn't actually promoting it at first. For me, these were two different things. I had the label on one side and I was building that up slowly but surely. (laughs) Way too slowly. (laughs) But surely. (laughs) And then on the other side, there was this YouTube channel where I decided that I would share what I learned because I thought I'm doing quality clothes, but it's no good if people can't tell what quality is. And fast fashion brands for years have been telling people, look at this Gucci sweater. We can make the same for 10 bucks. So why spend more? You can just buy more stuff. So people don't really know anymore. They don't sew anymore. Fair enough. So I wanted to share what I knew from being a designer, from having studied and researched all that. 
that's why I started the channel. Just genuinely to help people have fun with fashion because it's a very exclusive industry. And I think fashion should be for everyone and should not exclude anyone, no matter where in the world you are, what your body type or your budget is. So that's why I started YouTube. And eventually I realized that people were also interested in more general tips, I would say. What proportions fit me? How do colors work? How should I dress if I'm like this or like that? How can I curate my wardrobe? I have too much stuff, nothing to wear. So those are all topics that I decided to tackle as well. I expanded the scope of my channel and it blew up completely. Um, currently I have 750,000 subscribers, I think, and counting. It's crazy because this was just a hobby and it, and it still is because my focus is on fashion. YouTube is just, yeah, it's, it's a, a hobby that works. <laughs> but I try to keep those two pillars separately. The focus is on fashion. The bulk of my time is on fashion because that's where I have to spend my time if I want that part to grow. And YouTube is, is the fun plus a way of exchanging with people. It's not one way. It's not just me putting videos out there top down. It's really both ways because I get a lot of feedback from them and when I'm from my viewers. And when I'm in the process of creating a collection, I can even ask them, which colors would you like to see? What do you feel like wearing at the moment? Like what's the general feeling? I don't want to say trend because it's less conscious than this, but I will ask a question and within a few hours I'll get 10,000 responses. I mean, that that's a great focus group. Yeah, you have immediate access into the minds of your, your ideal customers. So I think that's certainly... Uh, gives you such a great advantage. I mean, you you have brands that are much larger than you. You have labels that are much larger than you that don't have as intimate connection at, with their target ideal customers as as you do. So yeah, let's talk about the YouTube success. So you start. You mentioned now. I think you had, like you said you have seven hundred fifty thousand subscribers. That's an amazing number. You're even amazed by it. Sounds like it's a surreal experience for you since it's grown so quickly from just, you know, you start as a hobby or something you're doing on the, on the side. So you started from zero, right? It was scratch. You had no subscribers at the time or what did you, did you start off with, with, with anything at this point? Listen, um, when people say you can't be famous on YouTube, I disagree. <laughs> because I started with zero subscribers. No one knew me. My videos sucked. The first one are really poor in quality and in, and in sound. Um, but I really had something to say, so I just kept doing it. Eventually, my skills got better. Thank God. <laughs> I got a new camera, proper mic, a proper background, proper lighting, and then my videos looked like something serious, you know. <laughs> and I wanted it to be, to be useful. And it just paid off. I've never ever paid for a view on YouTube. It's completely organic. So it's the proof that it's possible to grow on YouTube starting from nothing. And you don't need to be famous before or anything like this. It works. It really does. Just the algorithm. Makes sense. Okay. So you, you mentioned that you first started the channel to share what you, you're learning. So it was almost like you were sharing kind of like industry knowledge at first, right? It wasn't so much geared towards uh, people that were just uh, interested in it was geared towards people that were more interested in the fashion industry or like what was the content at first at the beginning it was more about documenting the process of creating a collection because i i got questions from my friends from the business world like uh, also how, how how does it work what do you do all day or like well my day looks like yours pretty much i work in front of a computer a lot i'm not Karl lagerfeld and they're like uh-huh they couldn't really comprehend how the process actually works when you're a regular little company like mine. And I thought that could be interesting for people who think everything in fashion looks like yours, which is not the case. <laughs> 
So I, I wanted to document that process. And then I realized that people were genuinely interested in knowing how things work, how clothes are made, how clothes are built for certain markets, and then how clothes can work for them. And that's when it really, I'm not sure I'm saying this um, clear enough. It's, it's when I realized that my channel could be more than just documenting the fashion industry from my perspective. It could really be a help for people who don't know about how to style themselves or are still looking for their style. I can help them with what I know, what I learned, my general feeling as a designer and what I research, like concrete facts. So what I do is a mix. It's not just information because there is also my input and my view of things in there, but it's still a more professional opinion, I guess, than if you watch right. videos by people who just buy fashion. I make it so I, I have a deeper understanding for it. And I think that's what is making my channel more unique. Right. You definitely have a much more unique perspective than, like you mentioned, someone that's just buying fashion that's actually involved as deeply as you are in the industry. So your content, it, it evolved for more of the everyday person. How did you recognize to 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 change the kind of content or not change, but to, to add on to the kind of content that you were creating? How were you able to understand what 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 your your growing list your growing uh, subscriber base wanted to see more of? I'm constantly in touch with my viewers. I re I spend a lot of time reading comments on YouTube or my DMs on Instagram for that matter or emails if they send me some. I also ask questions very often. I ask them for what they want to see, if they like the video, what they like, what they don't like. I mean, by now there are so many people watching that if I spend three hours reading comments, I will get a pretty good feeling for what was useful in the video, what they still wondering and maybe I can make a video about that. Or sometimes I push topics that are close to my heart, like the topic of capsule wardrobe, where people don't necessarily know how do you get a wardrobe of only 40 pieces instead of 100, but you wear every single one, you enjoy every single one, and you wouldn't need any more than that. It's a topic that matters for me because it goes hand in hand with quality. If you have less pieces, you will buy more quality and you will keep each piece longer and enjoy what you're wearing a lot more. It's a lot more fun when you actually curate your wardrobe. So that's also a topic that I that I deliberately pushed, for instance. But it's really both cases. Did you remember the tipping point where things just took off and you're like, wow, this is going way faster than you would have thought? I think when I reached somewhere above 40,000 subscribers, people started to comment under my videos talking about me, but in third person. And I realized like, wh where do they think I am? Like, I'm still reading everything. And I still am today. <laughs> I read as many comments every day as I can. And my channel has reached a stage or a size what people think she's so big, she's not She's not going to be reading this anymore. That's why I'm like, whoa, people think my channel is big. That's cool. But I still read comments. <laughs> that's, that's, that's very interesting hearing from, from you. So you, for someone out there that is uh, looking to take the same path where they either want to document what they're learning on their journey of building their business or learning more about their the skill sets that they're building or just creating a channel specifically to to grow their own business. What what kind of advice do you have for someone that's just trying to get their first, you know, thousand subscribers? And what is that journey like? What should you be focused on as you're growing your subscriber base, your first thousand? From zero to thousand, I think it's key to know to you pick one topic first, which is what you're really passionate about. You have to be because this is gonna take a while. <laughs> 
a topic that you're passionate about, consistently make videos with a regular schedule for a year. In my case, I think it took me a year to reach 3,000 3, subscribers. That's right. And then the second year, 14,000 something. Third year, 280. Wow. Next year, 500. And next year, 750. So it, it really grows exponentially at some point, but the start is the hardest part. And your first videos are probably going to get five views. Well, that's better than zero. And when I started, I actively shared, I didn't have a network, but I had my Facebook friends. <laughs> so I shared my YouTube videos on Facebook and my friends liked it. And they asked for more and they asked questions that gave me ideas for future videos. And that's where it started, really. There's no secret. I never invested budget on YouTube. I started with the cheapest camera I could find and I bought it secondhand and just kept doing it. Got it. When you're, when you're just getting started, how, how, how often were you producing uh, videos? At the beginning, I wasn't regular and I noticed that it also wasn't taking off. So after a few months, I started to upload every week. So every Sunday. So I did a video on Saturday, text, film, edit, and I uploaded it on Sunday. And then my weekend was over and I, I was done. <laughs> um, that was my weekend. Yeah, I think, I think a lot of people are are daunted. It seems daunting to start a YouTube channel or be on camera. Like how professional, how polished, like how animated does it have to be? Like, or, or is it possible to grow a YouTube channel by just sitting down and talking in front of a camera? Like, what is what, what what's involved when someone? Because I think a lot of people out there like think like, oh, YouTube channel would be great, but it just seems like a lot of work. How? simplified can you create how simplified or what is a workflow can you create to to start and grow a youtube channel there are different schools of thoughts on that matter personally i think if you're just going to turn the camera on and then start thinking about what you have to say you probably should turn the camera off again and <laughs> make it <the> bullet points <laughs> because this is going to be a video twice as long as what you actually need to get the point across so when i prepare a video i i i text or at least i prepare the complete structure of what i want to say english is not my mother tongue so i might even have to look for a couple of words in the dictionary translate what i need to no, like the keywords, the, the jargon. And then I turn the camera on. There are people who vlog, who really just turn the camera on and go. This is not my type. This is also not the kind of video that I like to watch because I think my time is precious. Please go straight to the point. But there is an audience for everything. There are people who love a vlog that's an hour long and they can just have a drink or eat at the same time. My videos, you can't really do that. Like you have to listen because I'm going fast. <laughs> I prefer a shorter video than a long one with lot of, lots of M's and M. But it's a matter of taste. And really, there's an audience for every single topic you can think of, treated in any way you can think of. Hey, real quick, if you're enjoying the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Let us know what you think or what you'd like to hear more of. Now, let's get back to the interview. God. Okay, so let's talk about the, the kind of next stage of this, where once you, you mentioned, I think you went from... 40,000 to 200,000 over span of a year. What changes when you, when you start talking about growing into the hundreds of thousands? And then it sounds like, you know, leaps and bounds after that it's from 200,000 to 500,000 to three quarters of a million. Like what changes in your approach do you need to put into place in order to continue to support? a YouTube channel that's, again, growing into the hundreds of thousands. So that was the year when I went from 14 to 218. So it was even more than oh, this. Oh, wow, even bigger. Um, okay. I, I got scared. <laughs> like, what is happening? I hacked the algorithm. <laughs> I got YouTube. Yeah. Um, 
I, I think it's a matter of uh, serendipity. I was focused on the topic that I'm good at, that I like talking about, and I was consistent in my uploads. So more and more people talked about what I was doing. I started to be mentioned in lots of blogs, like private people who like my content and wanted to share it. And I, up to this day, I love when people write to me and ask, can I mention you in my blog? Like, sure, you can use my videos, you can embed them, you can use my photos, whatever you want, go ahead, because I'm, I'm for sharing. That's the point of my channel anyway, in the first place. When I realized that it was blowing up, I switched from one video per week to two, and I took an editor, freelancer, to help me with the editing because I still had a fashion channel on the other side. It's not like that wasn't my full week on YouTube, right? So I needed help to keep some time for the label, but still be able to keep up that momentum on YouTube. So I got external help, basically. Yeah, okay. So let's talk about how you actually are able to, to use YouTube to support your business. So I, you mentioned that you launched your, to us, you mentioned that you launched your first jewelry line. Uh, through or on YouTube. So tell us more about that. How did you use YouTube to launch your jewelry line? I think at that point, I had about 250 subscribers on YouTube and I made literally a launch video explaining the concept. I hadn't talked about that uh, collection before, so it, it came as a surprise for my viewers. I explained the concept behind the collection the process, the problems on the way. I made it quite transparent and then I presented the final results. And when the video went out, the collection was available on the website. With 250,000 subscribers, the website crashed completely because there was also external traffic from people who already knew about me. So, oh, there's a new collection there, telling everyone they knew. Like, it, again, that word of mouth thing that happens also outside of YouTube and that happened before YouTube, in my case, it started before that. Um, all those people met in the same minute, minute on the website. <laughs> Everything collapsed. The website was down for hours. And I mean, it's great for the PR. It's sexy to say that you crashed the website, but really what's happening is you're losing sales. And that's not good. So, and just to be clear, this this was not yet on Shopify. Was that is that correct? I was not yet on Shopify, and I, I, and on that day, I decided right. The next time I launch a collection, <laughs> I need another provider. <laughs> this is not doing the job. <laughs> um, and eventually, I, I switched to Shopify at the end of last year. It was about time. It's a topic that I didn't really take the time to do soon enough, and I should have. It's one of the things I postponed because, well, it's just me basically running that business, but I eventually did it and it's a life changer. People are listening or wondering about a website to use. If you're going to sell things, use Shopify. It's the most advanced one, the most flexible one, the best one in reporting. I'm super pro Shopify because I've, I had other ones and I can really tell the difference. Awesome. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about the transition process for you because it sounds like you had a lot going on, but you're still able to make that transition. Uh, but we just want to talk a little bit more about the giveaway. So you mentioned 14,000 people entered it in 24 hours. What was the giveaway? How did you create a giveaway that attracted that much attention? Well, people who watch my YouTube channel know that I think through what I create and they're familiar with the way I create and the way I process things. So when I told the story of that new collection, I said ahead of the launch, there will be a giveaway if you're interested in participating in that giveaway and being informed when the collection drops. Here is where, to, where you can register. 14,000 people registered. I was blown away. And these people were also on the next day shopping on the website. It was incredible. 
and I didn't expect such an effect. I guess it's because I had been transparent about my creative process already before that. And what did you include in the giveaway? Pieces from the collection that weren't out yet, like the, the first piece. And this was a promotion all through your own channels. You weren't, you weren't, uh, I guess, using any other press or any other way to drive traffic to the giveaway and your store? On my website and, and in my newsletter, because I started building a mailing list very early on. In the first collection, you wonder if you're going to sell at all. And in the last collection you wonder if you produce enough <laughs> right there's always a new problem right to solve that's that's the life of the of an entrepreneur problems you didn't think you would have right yeah. okay so let's talk about the the transition over to shopify so when you what was that like tell us about the transition in the middle of basically you say you're running a business is already running it's already at a certain scale where it requires all of your attention but you still made the transition into shopify so tell us about that what was involved I took some help. I had a friend who is a project leader in e-commerce and he helped me basically ask the right questions. Like, what are the focus points of my website? Which content do I want to have on there? What's priority A, B, and C? Then I built my entire infrastructure on post-its, pretty much, on the wall. And I kept moving them around until everything was the way I wanted it. That was thanks to him. Then I took on a graphic designer somebody to do photo retouching, I did a photo shooting. And then when I had absolutely everything, I made a switch within 24 hours because I didn't want my website to go down, right? Because it was already up and running and, and selling. So it had to happen really, really quickly. And when you switch from another system to Shopify, you can import your customers, your past analytics and your inventory much quicker into Shopify. So I didn't have to reprogram everything entirely. And that was a time saver. That's great. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about the site that you set up. Are there any apps or that you, that you recommend that you use or that you rely on to run the business? What I can absolutely recommend is just to read that Shopify Academy stuff. There is so much material in there. It hasn't happened yet that I don't find the answer to my question. And then the analytics are super good in the Shopify system. And for instance, abandoned carts, who placed something in, into a cart versus who visit, visited that product page. This is the kind of information that I want. I know, for instance, that's on the homepage, that I'm among the top 3% of web shops that launched the same week as I do, as I did. That's something I want to know. So I'm deeply looking at the analytics at least once a month in details. What are some of the interesting things that you've been able to pull out of analytics? Like, where would you recommend people that don't, that aren't really into numbers, aren't into the data, they don't understand it yet? Where do you recommend that they pay the most attention to? Like, what are the most important metrics that you look at? Obviously, traffic, time on websites, and then along the funnel. So, when people reach the product page, did they place that item into a cart? Did they, did they reach the checkout system? Why didn't they check out in the end? Was I missing a payment method? Why didn't they put that item in the cart? What was missing there? So at each step, I can try to optimize to increase that conversion rate along the funnel. And then inventory management stuff. How much do you have left? How much have you sold recently? When do you need to place a reorder? Because basically the goal is to not be out of stock if possible, like to reorder before that even happens. So it helps me stay on top of things. I know how many tops I have in my boxes left because my inventory tells me that, but 
looking at the analytics, you can even say in how long you will reach the bottom of the box, basically. And that's super useful information. Got it. Awesome. So, so the website is at J-U-S-T-I-N-E-L-E-C-O-N-T-E.com. And I'll leave this last question, which is, what has been the biggest lesson that you've learned in the past year that you're actively applying this year? I think the thing that I should have done a lot earlier was to hire somebody. I worked for the last three years, at least, a lot with freelancers, made before YouTube or for my label itself. And I've had assistants, editors, videographers, photographers, translators, lawyers, everything. I even have a production manager now helping me with the details of the execution of a new collection. I should have had somebody earlier on who is part of my team fixed team because I have like two jobs. One is fashion, one is YouTube. That's a lot of to-dos to think of and to remember. And I should have had a personal assistant full-time a lot earlier on. I learned my lesson. I'm recruiting this year. <laughs> awesome. So I'm sure you're going to have some listeners here that might be interested in, in, in checking out what, what kind of uh, career opportunities they have over there. So thank you so much, Justine, for coming on and sharing your experience. Thank you so much for having me. I hope it was helpful for the people listening to your podcast. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Shopify Masters, the e-commerce podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs powered by Shopify.